What's the revolution? Go Dukes. Revolutionaries was good. Good, good. Today's episode is brought to you by the Rogue Media Group, which is a veteran-led integrative marketing agency with affiliated networks that reach nearly 1 million multicultural professionals, business owners, and public policymakers. RMG, as it's affectionately known, was founded in 2013 by my dude, Maximilian Hamilton and has grown from a single offering to a multifaceted media company that offers everything from media planning and buying to written content development, sponsorship consulting, and conference development, as well as digital marketing, custom video, DEI strategy, personal branding, and speaker sourcing. RMG's signature program, one that I was able to MC last year, is the fifth annual Fuel, the Ultimate Men's Summit. It will take place this year in November, the 9th through the 12th, 2023, in Houston, Texas. The annual summit is a gathering of 500 plus CEOs, professionals, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. Participants will explore and discuss advancing the mobility of black professionals, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. The summit will include a golf outing, panel discussions, keynotes, breakout sessions, and awards recognition, and guess this, a celebration of hip hop's 50th anniversary. To learn more about RMG and Fuel, the Ultimate Men's Summit, visit www.roguemg.com. And now, let's get ready for the show. Dr. Robert Turner, what's your revolution? My revolution it comes from my, my Christian faith. My revolution is about love. Um, every day, I hope that I can learn how to what 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 did Jesus mean to love love thy neighbor as thyself, right? I hope that every day I can get a little bit clearer understanding of what that means and I can walk in that, right? Because um he says this is the greatest commandment of, of everything. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, Revolution? What's good, Revolution? Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. A show for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves where people can find and embrace the revolution within themselves i am your host dr charles corporal what's good revolutionaries i hope all is well i hope that you are always as i say finding your community it's so important these days that you are surrounded by people who love and care for you who push you as i say you are the sum of the five people who you surround yourself with. And as we get older, and my guest and I will talk about today, community is even so important as we age. So I'm hoping that you are sitting with your people and doing your thing. At the recording of this episode, yes, I am still trying to hold on to summer. And summer has been a beautiful, beautiful season for me and my family and my friends. And I just want to make sure that you understand that as seasons change, you are still thinking about what we think is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? And you're moving and you are working towards fulfilling that revolution, that you're revolting and evolving 
that you're making the right choice points, that you're finding your midwives, that you know that your revolution is not just for you and that you should always be coming the next revolutionary version of yourself. So we are here for you. As I said at the recording of this show, it would have been almost a year since my father passed. As I have talked at length about Charles S. Corpru Jr. and what he meant to me, what his light meant to me. And then I think about this, and I've probably never said this on the show, Revolutionaries, that in my introspection about my relationship with my father, I realized that he was an only child and I was an only child. And once we broke the barriers of being father and son, it was always there. That auspices of being father and son was always there. But I realized that my father and I were brothers, not only fraternal brothers, but we were brothers. We laughed and joked and played ever since I was a child. And it was it was the roughhousing and joking and, and laughter and going to basketball games and baseball games and track meets and everything The reality of that was that my father was my brother and that we enjoyed that camaraderie. But if you remember, as I've talked so much at length here on this show, that the last five years of his life, his light was stolen. And that I became his caregiver because of Alzheimer's and dementia. And so I think it is very, very important as I think about who listens to the show and thinking about being a caregiver. How do we think about Alzheimer's and dementia? How do we even take care of ourselves as we develop? How do we move through those spaces so we can not lose the last five years of our lives? And I began to think about who do I want on the show to talk with me about this work, his work, and how do we mitigate and stymie some of the things that really exacerbate Alzheimer's? And I began to look and I found this wonderful, wonderful brother who not only is a JMU grad like myself, (laughs) but is one of the foremost gerontologists in the country. So I want to I want to thank first and welcome to the show, Dr. Robert Turner. And I want to I usually don't do this, Dr. Turner, (laughs) but I got to give you your flowers. Right. I've got to I've got to give you your flowers. I've got to I've got to read it off. Dr. Robert W. Turner II is an assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Research and Leadership with a secondary appointment in the Department of Neurology at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. He is a health disparities researcher with ethnographic and methods training. And you know that I love that because my dissertation was both. His current National Institute on Aging funded the K-1 award examine psychosocial and neurocognitive risk and protective factors, accelerated cognitive aging, and mild traumatic brain injury among former NCAA Division I and former NFL athletes. His book, Not For Long, The Life and Career of the NFL Athlete, is out for anyone to purchase to really, really understand what's going on when it comes to brain health for our athletes Dr. Turner, how are you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. It's great to, to speak with a fellow JMU alum. Uh, anytime anyone uh, reads that bio, I'm like, is this the same guy at 18 years old that went to uh, JMU on a football scholarship, not knowing what in the world he was doing? And um, somehow or another, 
God has brought me to this place. But I, I really appreciate you having me here. Thank you. No doubt. I, I love it. Go Dukes. Go Dukes. We play at the recording of this show. Hopefully uh, we win. We were playing we We're playing UVA this week at the recording of this show at in, in Charlottesville. And I definitely will be there. And hopefully other Dukes will be there as well. Before I jump in, I want you to talk about, if possible, what it was like for you being that 18-year-old at JMU on the football scholarship. What was it like for you, you know, moving through Harrisonburg and growing and developing into the person you were going to be four years later? What was that like for you? Well, first, I have to give a shout out to all of my brothers who played mm-hmm. on in 1982, which I'm way back in the day when we first played against UVA and beat them at home. And that really started to establish, you know, this this tremendous legacy that the young men today are living up to and extending well beyond whatever we did back at that time. And, you know, that was a real big shock that, you know, JMU just, I, I was on the first team at JMU when I started school that had played division one at that time, one double A just, Four years prior to that, uh, doc, you know, Chalice Joe McMillan, who wound up becoming a doctor, um, he was the football coach and it was Division Three, And he started the program by literally going through the line of registration and picking out guys and saying, oh, you wow. look like you could be big enough. You should play. <laughs> and, and then, you know, six years after that, we beat UVA. Right. So um, that has really set the foundation. So I, I can say. And all honestly, what it was like for me, I, I'm from Jersey, so I, I didn't know anything about going to rural, you know, Virginia, Harrisonburg, yeah. Virginia. But I was very, very fortunate that we were recruited, a bunch of us, uh, Gary Clark, Charles Haley, mm-hmm. um, Scott Norwood, so many guys who played in the, in the professional leagues. And I was fortunate enough to get my little drink, you know, in the USFL, Canadian Football League and finish in the NFL. But the one thing that we had, um, even though we were significant underdogs, is we had a head coach who cared about us. Mm. And I remember when I was staring it up, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy. I'm from, <laughs> used to spend all my time in New York City. I'm bringing mixtapes, selling them WBLS, right? So I'm getting full down there. And uh, the coach pulled me into the office one day and he said, hey, do you remember you sat right there in that seat and your mom and dad sat right over there? And do you remember the promise that I made them? And I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, I promised them that you were going to graduate mm. from school. So you need to cut out all of this other foolishness and get on the books. And uh, to my knowledge, everybody that I started came in with on the football program, we all graduated. Wow. because. He, you know, to that, to this, that, that point, our head coach was the one that ran our study hall. And if you didn't have a 2.0 or better, you had to be at the study hall. And the coach would go home, have his dinner, and then get back by 6.30, 7 o'clock and run study hall from 7 to 9. So, there, you know, if the head coach was making that kind of commitment to you, you had to, you know, pull through. And so everybody did. And that, so that was the biggest thing that I take away from my experience with at uh, JMU. Beyond the football, beyond everything else that we were all able to do, we came in as kids really and the coach and the coaches cared about us and promised us that we were going to you know live up to our potential on and off the field yeah that's a beautiful thing and and, and it makes me think about this and oftentimes the conversation goes in in directions that I, i i never think but i would be remiss if i didn't you know give a congratulations to coach Deion sanders and oh absolutely yeah and just as you just talked about that, we think about mentorship and the mentorship of men, right? 
And in this case, I'm going to say in the mentorship of black men. And what Coach Coach Sanders has done is, you know, in 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 my opinion, is move into a space, but still say I am going to move men into places in situations where they can succeed, where they can believe heartily about who they are and how they can perform even in the midst of adversity. You think about this, going to, I lived in New Orleans, so I was able to go to Jackson, Mississippi a couple of times to go to Jackson State and to say, you know, almost kind of like that Frank Sinatra effect. I'm going to go here. If I make it here, I can go to the next space and I can make it there, even if you doubt me. And at the recording of this episode, Coach Prime and his his wonderful Colorado Colorado Buffs just beat the number 17 TCU team who was in the national championship game last year. And what I heard from his players was this 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 not hubris, but this belief, right? This belief that somebody believed in them that they could be put into places to succeed. And this is what success can look like. And it sounds like that's what you got from your coach at JMU. And I wonder if I I wonder how that mentorship and, and, and other mentorship at JMU catapulted or at least moved you into I'm gonna go and be something bigger and better. I wonder if that was a catalyst for you. Well, you know, you, you bring up so many different things. First, I, I need to tip my hat to um, Coach Sanders as well. Because, uh, you know, what you didn't mention in my, my bio, I, I actually helped, I was involved with and helped write the, um, the movie um, Student Athlete that was produced by um, LeBron James. And it was on HBO and it, it really won a lot of awards. And it was the catalyst for um, um, the governor out in California, Newsom, Governor Newsom, to sign the name, image, and likeness um, oh, wow. deal out there. But then I also was, it was when the name, image, and likeness went before the Supreme Court, I was on one of the briefs that was um, really talking about the exploitation of, of the college athletes. And so I think what gets lost in what you just said, but it's so important is that, you know, college sports by no means is anyone going to mistake it for an amateurism any longer. And when someone pays you $5 million a year to coach a football team, no matter what, your number one obligation is to win games and to keep those that money rolling in. But Coach Prime has said oh, numerous times, I've seen him, he said, I'm here and, and parents entrust me to help develop these young boys into men. Yes. He goes, and that's my job. He goes, I, and, and, and I've been successful everywhere I've been, football, baseball, everything he's done. He goes, but number one is I'm going to turn them into great football players and turn them into great men, yes. right? And that in today's economy is so much more difficult than it was when I was at JMU. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they were we were building something. No one knew that when you look at the stadium now, it's 25,000 stadium. We've hosted game days a couple of times. We won national championships. They've moved up to the next division, you know, and people are in droves. You know, last year, JMU was the darling of college football because they came from division one double A and then they basically won their conference. No one could think that they would do that. Right. But when we were playing back in the day, we were trying to build the foundation yeah. for a great football program. No question about that. But, you know, we were just literally just kids. My dream was always to go to the NFL. That was always my dream, right? 
Um, but coach and our coaches, they were like, you're going to fulfill whatever your dream is. That's not a problem, but we need to give you the tools to be successful in every area of your life. And so it never crossed my mind that the guys that I came into school with that we weren't going to be successful because it, we, it was, we were all, we were all just doing our best, but they were great human beings. And that's what, that's what my experience was at JMU is that our coach recruited a bunch of great human beings to be around. Yeah. And that's, that's the blessing of coaches uh, and good coaches because, and I, I think about this in my own world in, in, in the venture capital world, you know, working with founders and CEOs as they're building their companies and good companies are built around bringing in good humans that have great talents and and, and thinking about that and then molding a culture that allows people to thrive. Think about that. I I think about, you know, revolutionaries, you know, that I talk about this all the time about my high school and my principal. And one of the, one of the catalysts for my success in life was going to that high school under the leadership of that principal who then instilled in those teachers Right. That we have a culture of success and that we want to make sure that you are then seeding that into our students. And like you, I didn't you know, I didn't go on. I played baseball. But if I look at my class of Greenland High School, 1989, we're some of the most prolific people in the country. Lawyers, doctors, superintendents, um, all all the things. But we knew once we left that high school, we could go out and take on the challenges of the world. I could go to the JMU. My friends could go to Yale, Harvard, UVA, UCLA, everything. If I look now, if I look at us, they're like, wow, what was in the water then? It sounds like the same thing was in, in the water. And I could spend a whole lengthy period of time talking about that. But this show is about, you know, how do we think about Alzheimer's? How do we think about Alzheimer's as black men and moving this conversation from your time at JMU. How did you get involved or begin to think about, and we won't even get into the conversation of Alzheimer's so quickly, but to begin to think about brain health and, and why it was so important to understand brain health so that then we could understand how to mitigate and offset dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, I appreciate you asking that question and, and really to answer that question, I hope I don't ramble and go too long, but, but it's, it's how I wound up. I stumbled into it really. And, and I, just the same way that I, I went to graduate school, I just kind of stumbled into it. And, and, you know, my faith is very, very important mm-hmm. to me. And, and sometimes, you know, you're pushed in directions and led in directions that, you know, you don't, you don't really know where yeah. they're going to end. And it doesn't matter because all, you know, when the call is, you just, you just move. Mm -hmm. And so I was working full time in New York city and I, I knew that my, when we talk about a lot of my family, my dad is is a lot like your dad. He was a Marine Mm -hmm. and my grandmother, they, they were really, you know, those are my idols. They were really the people that that showed me. Um, Because when I graduated from JMU, my dad, I remember to this day, and it's really, really important, two things happened to me on graduation day that have shaped my life in many, many different ways. One is my my position coach, Coach Joe Carrico, came by on graduation day. My whole family was there. And... um, and my dad said, you know, I mean, Coach Carrico said, I'm so proud of you. And my dad said, yeah, he's done it. He goes, and now th- he can do anything in life that he wants to do. 
And I remember when my dad said that it struck, that was one thing from graduation day that really struck me because I was like, what is he talking about? Like, how could I just do anything that I want to do? Um, but that, you know, I guess it was planted to see deep down inside that I was, I could, if I put set my mind to it, that I could actually do what I wanted to do. And then the other thing is my grandmother, um, she's from North Carolina. Um, and as many of us, we have family, you know, great migration. She was grandchildren of slaves and she moved up to New Jersey back in um, 1920. Wow. And my grandmother, the day that I graduated, she gave me a crisp, brand new, brand new $100 bill. And she had said to me, she said, all of my life, I've been waiting for someone in my family, for my children or my grandchildren to graduate from college. And you have fulfilled my lifelong dream. Wow. Right. And so I, that I thought, wow, I, I didn't even realize that how important that was. And later, years later, my dad had told me my grandparents collectively didn't have over a seventh, eighth grade education between my grandmother and grandfather. Neither one of them went beyond fourth grade. And I never really knew that, right? But I realized and when my grandmother had shown me, when she shared that with me, how important education was to her and to, to our family. And so I knew that, that, that someday I was going to go back to you know, go to graduate school. And I thought I was just going to go get a master's. And I wound up looking at sociology and, and, um, the reason I, I, I decided to get a PhD was very simply because when I was reading online, it said, you can't do much with That's a master's correct. in sociology. Right. So I said, all right, I'll get a PhD, which, you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes when you don't know <laughs> what you're actually going to do. And that's what happened. But during the time that I was in graduate school, I, one of the professors said to me, write about what you know. That's the easiest way to get through the program. And so I thought, okay, I have, I was a professional football player. And at the time I was running, I was the managing director for a uh, sports marketing company. And I said, well, I know I'm around athletes all the time. And I, I'd made this decision. I thought, okay, I'm going to do an ethnography because it's going to be quicker than doing a statistical <laughs> analysis project, which I, that was, again, really stupid. Didn't know what that was <laughs> all about. Uh, it, it took me forever, right? But but what wound up happening is as I was doing field research for the book, it was right at the time when Junior Seau had committed yeah, suicide, yeah. Dave Duerson, Andre Waters. Um, and a number of people started losing. And then I did two interviews of which both two men that I had interviewed had said that they were struggling with depression during their, their college, I mean, their professional career. And I thought to myself, how in the world could someone be an elite athlete and perform at such a high level by struggling with mental health issues? Yeah. And I was like, I know that for me, if my girlfriend would have broken up with me, that would have been it. I couldn't <laughs> even hold my head together. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to perform, right? So, I, so that started me pushing me down that road. And so at first I was really thinking about mental health, but then a confluence of things came together where I realized that, you know, the NFL is 70% black, college division one sports, especially on the, uh, on, on the, you know, the, the larger scale, they're almost all exclusively black that play on the first, you know, lines. I was like, so what, what is this all about? Especially when you think about the issues around concussion, CTE, mm, yeah. all of those different things started me thinking about brain health. Yes. And then right at that, around that same town is when my dad got diagnosed with mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, you know? And so I started to think, well, what does this mean for people like me? Yes. And that's pushed me down the road to be where I am today. It's interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I, I totally appreciate that because one, I can totally, I, I can totally um, sympathize with 
like being pushed, right? This, you know, being being pushed into things when you never know. Like you said, you know, your faith, your faith illuminates how you walk in the world. Because a, a lot of my story is the same thing that I I didn't know how I was going to get there. But the, the, the next plank came. I always tell this story about as I'm about to fall off one plank, the next plank comes and I, I, I'm moving in another direction. It's so, it, 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 it's so interesting to hear that, that this story of faith of your family and the belief in you and that, that we are going to, you know, the ancestors are going to rise you up and still believe that no matter what, we're going to push you into spaces that you can be successful. You can now do anything as your father said there's a belief and and i'm going to get to this question in a second but there is a belief that i think that fathers good fathers instill in the, to their children and it, i i think it's that that belief that i want you to move into the next station of life that i may not have been able to experience i want you to experience <clears throat> my father was the same way my father had this saying, you know, it's particularly when I was in grad school, Dr. Turner, is that he was like, when I went, those days when, you know, there was a struggle, you know, there was a struggle when the writing wasn't as, as, as easy. Uh, the tests were a, a bit harder. I would call, I've got this major exam, dad. What am I going to do? Well, one, you're going to have faith. You're going to persevere. And he would say this, remember that you were further along than when you started. Amen to that. You know what I'm saying? That's really important. <laughs> and that kept that that kept me going. You are further along than when you started. And it's so interesting to be able to look back. And I remember it state looking back. Day one was gone. Day one was gone. And then all of a sudden getting the piece of paper and like, oh, oh now you're Dr. Corporal. Well, you you're much further along than when you started. And so imparting those those things, that wisdom, those pearls that fathers give to their children. And I'm not discounting anything from our mothers, not at all, but it's something about what the father can see, particularly into his son, you know, that, that, that becomes a catalyst for our success. I want you to define something before I move into the next line of questioning is, is define Alzheimer's to us. So my, to our revolutionaries know what it is, just break it down for us. Well, I'm going to do it in, a, in a, the most simplest form, right? The most, the most simplest form. We have brain cells, neurons, right? And, and they communicate with one another, right? It, you know, this is, it, and I'm, I'm learning in a lot of different ways that we, you know, the human body is just this most amazing thing, right? But, you, you know, your brain communicates with, with your arm or your hand and tells it to move, right? Well, it has to have just like, it has to have, clear pathways for the messaging, the electronic pulses, the messaging to be sent that way, right? And so what you have is when you wind up having these brain, these damaged brain cells are of which you have plaques and you have tangles, right? Mm. And so that what winds up happening with the, um, with the tangles is a glob up together mm. and then they break off. And then so therefore them, they cannot, um, you know, 
it just, the pathways are just broken. And then when you have plaque, just like when you have, you know, you're, you have clogged arteries from plaque in your arteries, right? It, it, you, the messaging can't flow, the blood can't flow through that. And so essentially what winds up happening, and it's, and most people think it's all about losing your memory. It's not about just that at all. It's your ability to have your, your memory, your executive functioning, your, your ability to control, you know, your, your body. One of the things that Alzheimer's is so important in a lot of different ways, but you know, I asked the question that when I was studying, how does how does someone die of Alzheimer's? Because I thought, you know, at first I thought it was just you know limiting your um, your memory, right? But what winds up happening is, and it is your memory. But most people with Alzheimer's, um, and 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 I, again, I don't want to go through too much no, of this. Please, please, a lot yeah. of people. A lot of people conflate what Alzheimer's and dementia is, but what most people is when they die from dementia-related, um, you know, disease or, or something, it's because your body no longer knows how to function. Yes. Like, for instance, you get, uh, um, you, you know, you wind up getting pneumonia, flu in your lungs because your lungs forget how to, they, they can still function, they can still breathe, but there's no signaling from your brain to do that, right? And so in many different forms and fashions, people suffer from this. But essentially, the, the bottom line is that um, the communication pathways from your brain to the rest of you know your body, your rest of your organs can can really suffer from that. And then you can, um, and, and it's a disease basically. And this is a, the one other thing that I want to want to drive home is that, um, like any other disease, it, it can have, it can progress. And so over time, there are many different stages, but that being said, I want people to recognize that, you know, this disease in some people progresses much faster yeah. or much slower. And so some people, um, it never really progresses past the, a very mild stage. And then other people, it can rapidly, um, you know, descend into full on dimension. Yeah. Brother, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I, I, I think that my listeners need to understand that. And I often think, you know, having lived this firsthand and understand that you are living this right now with your father as well, is that I, I, I thought that, you know, once, once we got the diagnosis, like, oh my God, my father is going to forget me. And that's a tough thing. And, and I, I, I went through the diatribe early, like that now my brother, not only my father, but my brother is going to forget me. My father didn't lose his memory per se, his, his short-term memory. And, and as you age, your, your, your short-term memory is going to become faulty. Uh, anyway, his long-term, his crystallized memory was still, he could still tell me walking to school what that was like. He could talk about his mother and grandfather, and we could laugh and, um, about his revelry in college and some of the, the, the simple and silly things that we do. But like you said, Alzheimer's began to ra ravage his body. You know, his ability to walk, his ability to hold on to his fluids, um, and that was the that was the thing. My father was ninety three years old when he passed, and to see the last five years, you know, where he slept more often than anything, he was it was almost like he was a it was almost like he was an old dog. You know, he would he would perk up for food, um, and then go back to sleep. He would perk up for a little bit of conversation, and then go back to sleep. But that was the that was the thing, you know that that it took 
that part of his life, this vibrant man that could move and wanted to play volleyball and was out dancing all the time, that was gone. And so it was really, really interesting. And we'll talk about some of the, uh, the, the opportunities to mitigate this. But that's what I think we have to understand is that this disease can go in a manner of different ways and how we care for folks, how we surround them with the necessities, how we love on them can exasperate, slow down. All of those things I think are important. I want to move into this because now that we have an understanding is that why is understanding brain health so important early on for us? And particularly as black men, let me ask this question first. From a research standpoint, does Alzheimer's and dementia impact black men, men of color differently? Like if I think about prostate cancer, you know, the research on prostate cancer is that it is more lethal in black men than any other population. But is that, are there similarities? Is the, the, the impact of the disease more debilitating for us than any other? You know, again, you ask these great questions and I'm thinking to myself, all right, I feel like all of a sudden I'm in a, in a lecture that's two hours and you keep looking at the clock and, and you say to yourself, how did we get here? We got so much more to cover. But I do, I think we need to clean up just a little bit because again, I, terms are really important. Language really matters. And people, you know, again, as I mentioned before, people will often conflate Alzheimer's disease with dementia, mm -hmm. right? So I, I just need to focus and let people know that, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease is a neurocognitive disorder. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of neurocognitive disorders, right, that wind up leading to, that can progress to dementia, right? So Alzheimer's, about 80% of the neurocognitive disorders that lead to dementia, it's 80% of it is people are experiencing Alzheimer's disease. But then there's also, um, you know, we have frontal temporal lobe, mm -hmm. um, we have Lewy body's disease, we have vascular disease, we have um, it can come from repetitive head impacts, um, you know, traumatic brain injury, a, a significant TBI. There also, again, um, HIV infection can lead to some of those things. So I, I want to just say, and this goes back to the question or directly into the question of why it's so important to um, have early diagnosis, because early diagnosis will be able to tell you what type of neurocognitive mm. um disorder that you're dealing with. And each one of those types also manifests, it progresses differently and there's certain symptoms that deal with. And so again, if you have, are with someone that has aggressive behavior and you understand that that's part of the disease, um, then as a caregiver, you can, you can start to be educated about and what to expect and then yeah. come up with different methods to deal with some of these things, right? So that's the number one important thing is, is really early diagnosis will help you understand what you're dealing with, mm -hmm. right? And then the second thing that's really important, and, and this is moving, as we move along, you know, we're starting to get to a point where we're having personalized medicine, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And in you, you know, in order for and black folks, as we know, are we have a huge distrust and and we've been treated very poorly within the you know the health and medical fields and those kinds of things. But what's most important is is 
understanding, and, and this goes to your second question, how do these diseases affect black men? Um, the answer to that question is we really don't know. And the reason that we don't know is because we are so underrepresented in research. To give, so give me an example. Let me, let, me, let me go here a little bit, right? And I know I'm throwing out a whole bunch, but- you Take your time. Tell the story. Research, research suggests that Black Americans are almost twice as likely to, um, to be impacted, be affected by Alzheimer's disease, right? So that means, for instance, the regular rates are amongst white Americans are about 8 9%. Black Americans is about um, 18%. Right. But it's a lot of people, which is twice as much, yeah. but people actually would believe that we actually have are affected by much higher rates. One, because we so what, what happens is, is we have are more likely to have it, but we wind up getting um, diagnosed much later in the disease yeah. cycle. Mm-hmm. Right. So they believe that we might have it much at a higher rate. But again, if you look at kind of for black men is in particular, you know, our lifespan right now is some depending on how you look at it. You know, it's between 68 and 70 years old, right? We It was up as high as 74, but because of COVID, the numbers have been, you know, trending downward. Wow. And so if you think about Black men living that short of life, we also know that a person can um, generally have um have be di- have diagnosed have affected by the disease up to 20 years before you see a manifestation what right exactly so a person and, and generally what we say is that getting alzheimer's um before 65 is really what's considered early onset yeah. but in a person at 65 where you see the manifestation of it may have contracted the disease as early as 45 years you know old and so if you think about us only living to 65 68 to 70 um we and we don't get diagnosed there's a lot of people cases that would never why that we never really understand what's going on and so so two things one when you're talking about understanding getting ready and being able to um care for a person knowing the disease pathology knowing how it actually you know manifest would be really important to take care of it you talk about um also when you're looking at um personalized medicine um being involved and then seeing how this disease impacts with our kind of particular um gene environment interactions our stress all those kinds of things are really really important and so here's what i'm going to leave because again i'm throwing a whole bunch of stuff but right now this is great this is great Going to everything else that we say, Black Americans, when it comes to Alzheimer's-related research, we only represent 5% of the population that participates in research. And of that 5%, right, so that means 95% of what we know about um, the way the disease function, it we only know it based on the five percent that that actually has participated in research, Alzheimer's related research. Now, here's something that will blow everyone's mind away: of that five percent, seventy five percent of those individuals that participate in research are black women. So we're not right? we're not so, even there. Exactly. So we're 25% of 5%, which means that we're somewhere around 1%, yeah. 1 or 2%, something like 1.5%. So in other words, how the disease 
functions with us. So as an example, I'll give you just a very clear cut example in my research that I do right now. In normal research, when you're looking at and you're, you're doing neurocognitive examinations based on the instruments that we have, we pretest for um, depression. Mm-hmm. And if you have a depression or a certain rate of depression or the intensity of depression, then we disqualify you because um, that will have an impact on the way that your brain functions, mm-hmm. right? In terms of how you respond to these neurocognitive tests. Now, what we started to do in our in our, our study, which is uh, which is forty black men who are who are caregivers of someone uh, with dementia or um, you know some kind of monocognitive impairment, or and then compared to other men who do not provide care. So what we wound up doing is we did the pre-screening on the de- depression. The rates of depression were so high amongst the individuals that were in my study is if I went with the conventional way of conducting the study, we wouldn't have found enough black men who did not have some form of experience of depression. Right. And, and it didn't mean that you were having because we asked about your depression history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it didn't mean that you were dealing with depression now. But um, that was we just couldn't have found enough of them. So that is why it's really important. When I have another pastor that I work with in my studies and what he did when he did the pre-screening, he said he came to the realization he was in Washington, D.C. He said, I realized that where my depress- the root of my depression was from the trauma that I had experienced. And he goes, and now I'm dealing with so many people in Washington, D.C. He goes, my pews are filled with people who have had trauma that have not been diagnosed nor have ever been treated, right? So we have a very unique profile, yes. right? So when we're trying to understand how the disease state functions within us, you can't look at other populations and try to understand mm-hmm. how that works wow. within us. That's, wow. <laughs> like the, like the research in me is geeking out on all everything that you just said. Um, but then from a personalized perspective, like we, you're right. We, our, our story hasn't even been told and we need to, we, that story needs to be told because you think about that. The more research, the more people, that are involved in this, involved in this research, more we can understand, we can then hopefully design strategies, right? That are, you know, and if we think about the the health disparities that to mitigate the health disparities Mm -hmm. that, you know, that we can design strategies, but we've got to, we've got to get involved. And and that's a whole nother show. But the question that, the question that rises up for me is because we had no clue that my dad had been, you know, had the disease. It was like one day right. he fell off a cliff, Dr. Turner. It was like literally he was getting dressed the one day and the next day it was gone. Like literally it, it, it was gone. He was like, I don't know how to tie my tie. I don't know how to put on my shoes. I don't know how to put on my socks anymore. And like, wait a minute, you could do this just a week ago. And all of a sudden you were driving just three months ago. Now, all of a sudden it was like, Boom. And I remember it was the, the, the distinct time is when we got the diagnosis was his doctor asked him to draw a clock, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. clock test. And he drew the clock and everything, everything was outside of the clock. He wasn't even in a, everything was. And then that was, that was the thing. 
Can you talk about the symptoms that people should be looking for? If you're saying that there's a potential that people have had Alzheimer's 20 years earlier than their initial diagnosis, what should we be looking for in folks? A couple of things, and I'm going to speak to black men in particular on this, right? But 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 it really does impact our community. I'm going to talk about two two risk factors, two potential risk factors, and I think we should really be aware of the first one. I'm going to talk about is is um, vascular disease, right? The rates of vascular disease, cardiovascular, mm-hmm. and all t- types of vascular. And we, what we say in the research that I do is we say what's good for the heart is good for the head, mm-hmm. right? So so the things that are I, I'm really concerned with that, that we really need to pay attention to, because again, if you think of vascular disease in particular is, is tied to um, to our diets, yeah, right? Yes. In, in many instances, right? Where so you have the clogged arteries and you have people, you know, Again, you have so much like gooking your 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 vessels that the mm-hmm. blood the blood can't go through your veins, right? And so that same exact thing that that clogs your arteries around your heart also clogs the arteries in your head, right? And so we don't again we don't even know the rate, but we do know that we are at the highest risk for vascular dementia. Right. And vascular dementia has a, a certain particular type of manifestation. So I, I think, you know, again, high cholesterol, cholesterol mm-hmm. levels are really, really important stuff that, you know, you got to understand that that puts you at a greater risk for vascular dementia mm-hmm. when you have high cholesterol levels. Right. Not only is it difficult for your heart and then you may, you know, you may, you know, again, get get your like if we don't know to go and get a test to see what's going on there. And you're not talking to a um, neurologist or, you know, a neuropsychologist or any of those kinds of things. We're not getting those early testing to find out what's going on. So all of a sudden it gets us to a point where it's like, where did this come from? Right. 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 Cause we don't know. And, and, and then the other thing is that many there's just not enough black doctors and, to ask and to look for this, a pre-screen for these kinds mm-hmm. of things. Right. So it's it's a it's a vicious kind of circle that you you get on this pathway and starts to um, spiral out of control out of control that we are we, we have certain risk factors and so we need to test for those risk factors right. very early mm-hmm. right and if we don't then that puts us in a in a bad position the other thing that I want to say and, and I and I really I have not done enough study on vascular dementia and and you know cardiovascular disease and and, va- and other types of vascular diseases but I, it's become going to move into become very se- central to what I do but the other thing that I really want to emphasize because it we are we have much higher rates of this disease than anyone else. And that is, um, or disorders. And that is, um, when you are looking at people who have sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Sleep apnea, people don't realize that, but sleep apnea puts you at a greater risk for, um, dementia as well. And the reason being without really going all geeked out, there's two reasons that we need to be very concerned about that is that you, you know, when you sleep, have sleep apnea, you can stop breathing up to 400 times. A yes. Night, yes. Right. Which means that you are cutting off the oxygen supply to your brain, which will then lead to some kind of neurocognitive disorder or dysfunction. Right. You got to have blood uh, you know, flow. You got to have oxygen in your brain in order for it to, to if you starve anything, you know, you starve your, your ankle, the blood flow cuts off, it eventually dies. 
right? Yeah. So this is essentially what winds up happening wow. to our heads. That's, that's really important. The other thing is we have this thing called the glymphatic system that most people don't really pay attention to, but we have this, the body's just an amazing thing. It has this natural way of, you know, again, with cells in our body, What's bad for you is when you retain fluid, inflammation, right? So arthritis, you want to get rid of the inflammation out of your system. So when you're, you're, you know, basically throughout the day through pollen, through all kinds of different things, our cells get inflamed and they get dirty and they need to be flushed out. Essentially, you need to be a cleansing, a flushed out, just like your kidneys would be flushed out. Your brain needs the same thing. So we have this thing called the glymphatic, glymphatic system. So when you go to sleep, it, it works all day long, but 80, 90% of it works while you're sleeping. For some reason or another, it's designed that when you sleep, right, it flushes out all of the toxins mm-hmm. in your brain. Wow. It gets rid of that inflammation, those, those you know, worn out brain cells mm-hmm. that, you know, rejuvenate, rejuvenate they get rejuvenated and, and it happens that way. When you don't, and so a lot of people say, well, hey, listen, I, I, you know, I don't, I never have been able to sleep uh, eight hours, six, eight hours. My body just doesn't function that way. Well, there's two problems with that. One is it doesn't give the, uh, mm. the brain the opportunity to flush itself out. And you might be able to function, but you can't function optimally, right? The body needs to flush that out opt- optimally, which is why you need to, you really do need to have six to eight hours of sleep every night. And if you're not getting it, you need to go to a sleep specialist yeah. and, and talk about your sleep hygiene. But some people, because of like, sleep apnea, the blocked, um, you know, a passageway, you can't breathe. It shuts that off. So you need to go and get that fixed. And other people say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to wear the mask. It's uncomfortable. All kind of things. I will leave, you know, our, our listeners with this. Everybody knows about Reggie White. Hall of Fame, well, not everybody, but most people know he was Hall of Fame, defensive end. Some people say he was the minister, the minister, minister of, defense. of defense, right? Yeah. And one of the best, maybe Actors the best Eagles. player to ever exactly play the best position in his whole life, the best, right? Um, he had been a diagnosed with sleep apnea, had a mask, had a CPAP system. But every once in a while, it was encumbersome. He didn't want to wear it. And he said, forget it, I'm not going to wear it. And so the night that he died, he chose not to wear his mask, right? So it is that important. Those two things alone, by looking at, you know, vascular dementia and looking at, you know, getting proper sleep, making sure your airways, passageways are, um, you know, uh, well taken care of. We have very high rates of obesity. We have very, black men have very, you know, thick necks. Those are all things that put us at great risk. And those are exactly why we need to, um, have those identified very early because it, it one it could definitely lengthen your your life yeah. you know get rid of the obesity lower you know your blood pressure making sure that you know you don't have um, you know, your cardiovascular system is working properly that you you know you don't have you know clogged arteries those kinds of things are really essential to early diagnosis mm-hmm. but also living a healthy and living a long life. Man, that is that is amazing. Thank you. And I think I'm thinking about my mother who has sleep apnea. And I want to say that my father was diagnosed with sleep apnea and decided not to. He snored like nobody's business. <laughs> um, That's probably what that was. Yeah. Right. So if you think about that for over a 20 year period, it, it just sets you up for yeah. being at the greatest risk factor for this the wow. Risk population. Wow. 
Revolutionaries, this, I mean, just this information itself is just, it's just a game changer. And, and we're thinking about, if we're thinking about the social factors and the, the, the dietary factors that we won't have a chance to get into here, but <clears throat> a more plant-based diet, a more, um, allows for base, basically, as you said, a more heart healthy diet will uh, allow you, um, I'm, I'm plant-based forward. So I, I, I try to think about plants first, um, then meets, um, exercise, um, as, as, as a part Absolutely. of this. I, I tell people three things that the three things that your mother told you, or that your you know, your pediatrician, your, when you were a kid, three things they told you, you gotta sleep, <laughs> you gotta exercise and you gotta eat right. Right. Because that's how our body was designed. Right. And those are the things that reduce I mean, those are the things, you know, like, hey, listen, if cancer is coming, it's, it's going to come. There's certain things that are just going to wind up happening. But even within all of that, and we know this, what we do know and why this is so important is that when you when you have when you're strong, we have a strong system. It helps you ward off some of these diseases. Right. And it helps you. It gives you mm-hmm. a much better time to recuperate. Right. That That's what we need to do. If, if, if anything else, if. if People want to have good, proper brain health. They want to understand their risk factors for brain health. They want to understand what can I do to start eating healthy, start exercising, and start getting sleep. Yeah. Right? Just making those things are like integral parts of who you are as a human being. Right? Because because he, even what I think of is that we want to have, yes, people want to live long lives, but we want, I want you to have a high quality of life. That's, and that's, that's the key, the quality of life. Like it, I started at the outset of this show is that the last five years of my father's life were in my mind stolen from him because he, he was either sleeping or eating and that was it. You know, and, and that was it. I, I got a few minutes to try to figure out questions that, I never got a chance to ask, you know, thinking about like, what, what, what did you deal with in your life? What were your struggles? That was one of the questions I thought after, after his passing that I never got a chance to ask him, you know, the psychologists, like, why didn't I ever ask my dad? What were your challenges? What, 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 what kept you up at night? What were, did you ever, were you ever depressed? Were you ever anxious? All of those things. I couldn't have those conversations with him anymore. And I, I, you know, I, I, I feel now like, damn, I missed, I missed opportunities to understand my dad in a, in a, a more fuller way than I, than I had. And I, and I thought that I knew him, but it's funny when you right. don't have that, when you don't have the, the time to spend with them to ask the question, you're like, damn, I, I, I missed something. I missed something. Our, our, our time has grown, has gone really, really fast, but I, I feel like I need to add, there are two questions I need to ask you. Okay. One, what, what, what tips do you give to caregivers? How, because that, that's, that's one of the most arduous things is that when you flip and now you have to take care of a family member who has this debilitating disease, what, what do you say to them? How do they, how do they manage the disease with their, the person that they're caregiving and how do they take care of themselves? Those are great questions. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to do my best to try to answer, but I, I also feel inadequate often when it comes to answering at least one of the questions. And the reason being is because, again, the disease progression, it progresses at different rates. And so and how it manifests in one person may not be the way that it is in another person. And so it, it, it's 
I, I'm very sympathetic to what anyone has to go through to to be a caregiver for someone. Like I, as an example, my dad is my dad has always been a saint, and he even with Alzheimer's, he's a saint. He's my dad wakes up every morning. I woke him up this morning, right? Because we have a, we're very fortunate. We have the means we can afford a home health aide that's um, lives in the home twenty four hours. My, unfortunately, my mom passed away a year ago, right. and so me being the primary caregiver, given everything that I have to do, I couldn't do it on my own. I need help, and. You know, so our our, our um, home health aide had the last couple of days off for yeah. holiday, and so it's my job to wake yeah. up, dad, yeah. cook him breakfast, yeah. and do all yeah. these things. Yeah. And you know, I pray every morning because I don't know how he's going to wake up, yeah. but er- without fail, I'm like, dad, good morning, and he's like, good morning, and I say, how are you doing? He yeah. goes, well, I'm doing great. He goes, I'm getting ready to put both feet on the ground, and I'm doing fine. Yeah. And we just had a lovely day. So what I, you know, my experience might be different than a lot of mm-hmm. other people's, right? My dad doesn't curse. Matter of fact, we watch television. My dad was a minister. Like you said, stuff that was inside of him, he still he watches TV and he's like, whoa, whoa, we don't need that kind of language. <laughs> so his personality is, is unbelievable. But what I'd say, the, the, the thing that has helped me the most is to recognize that you have to meet a person where they are. Yes. Not where you are, mm. right? If, if like, you know, if, if, like my dad doesn't know the difference between 11 o'clock at night and 11 o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. and, and and for lots of different reasons, that's important, right? Because we got to make sure we get some sleep, get that, 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 but meet him wherever he is, wherever he is at that moment, just meet him right there. Yeah. Right. If he does, if he thinks it's too early to go to sleep or like, I really need to, because look at it, it's 11 o'clock, let him go lay down. And then five minutes later, wake him up and say, hey, dad, guess what? Da, da, da. And he gets on up and then we can reset the clock yeah, based on what's happening yeah, with him. Yeah. Right? Why, why fight? It, 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 mm. I give you an, one other quick example because, you know, I know we're running out of time. But my dad and my mom used to, my my mom would go shopping. My dad hates going shopping. They go grocery shopping. And for at a certain point in time, my dad just it infuriated him that he would take stuff out of the basket, put it up on the conveyor belt, they'd ring it up, and then my mom would put it in bags after that. For him, in his mind, it came out of the basket, it needs to go back into the basket <laughs> without shopping bags. And so it, it was this struggle all the time. And then my dad would get upset and get frustrated and, you know, he'd start to huff and puff and pout. Then at some point, we just realized that, for dad, his reality is that they don't belong in the, in a grocery bag. So don't put them in a bag. Yeah. Just put them back in the basket, shot, push the basket back out to the car and put them in the back of the car all loose, right? And then he'd go home and he'd be happy. He'd walk up the stairs. And at that time, we'd put him in the bags and take the bags upstairs. <laughs> yeah. We just met him where he was and, mm. and it took a lot of strain and stress off yeah. of everybody. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. That that is a beautiful thing because it, it it makes me think back to my time with my father. And there was a there's a there was a trust that my father and I had. And I think that I I think that unconsciously I did what you just said. I met him where he was. And I think that he also had, and I say this, he had a cognition of where he was. And that at some point he had to release control. 
my father was this big figure. He was a civil rights activist. He was a war veteran. He was a principal. He was an administrator. All of these things. My father walked into the room. He was, and he was a big personality. But as you mm-hmm. know, the disease can, the disease diminishes your light. And there was a point in time, Dr. Turner, where I think that he realized that my son now has to take care of me and I have to trust him. And I know that he has the best interests in me. And I would say that all the time when I had to do something for dad, do you trust me? And he would say emphatically, I trust you. And it was that trust, right? It was that trust that we had when, when I needed to, when I needed to pick him off the floor when he got up at the, at night, you know, and, and for some reason, for some reason, figured out how to walk for five or six seconds, put his shoes on. And then all of a sudden he realizes like, oh, I can't walk and I've fallen. And I'm not, I've got to pick up this 200 pound man and say, dad, okay, it's just me and you. Do you trust me? And he's like, I trust you. And I could lift him up and put him back in the bed, kiss him on his forehead, tell him that I love him. And we could keep it moving. You know, it is that it is that level of trust of meeting them where they are. And I love that you say that, that meeting them where they are and giving them love and care. I think that is the biggest thing. And being a caregiver is 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 far from easy. But at the end of the day, Dr. Turner, I would never trade that time with him. Absolutely. I want, let me just say, I know we're very much at our end of our time, but I want to say one other thing that I think is particularly germane to black men. Mm. You know, black men are very proud, right? Mm-hmm. Very, you, you, everything that you got to go through in this country, <laughs> you know, especially our father's generation, yes. right? And yeah. our grandparents' generation and everything else. Respect is the utmost important. It's the most important thing that you can do. And so for me, at least in terms of caring for my dad, and if I think about others, show them how much you respect them, right? Give them honor and give them respect. And because that no matter what the disease is going through, they've always held themselves that you're going to respect Mm. me. They may not know who you are, even as their son, they may not. But what they know is that, they can trust you. They like you. They care about you. When you show them, you have respect and you trust and, and that you care for them. Those are, to me, when I, when you're talking about dealing with a black man and, and, you know, again, my dad was the, and I'm sure you can relate to this. My dad was the very first um, black man in the electrical union in New Jersey. Wow. He broke that color barrier, yeah. right? And, and in fact, when it got to a certain point when the, the EEOC, they wanted the federal government wanted to bring a lawsuit against the um the, the union and and up in jersey it was all italian and then but they wanted to use him as a pawn to show that no we're not racist because look we got one right my dad figured out how to on both sides of this how to come out shining and keep his head up right and he that's a prideful thing for him yeah. and so the, the, you know they've gone through a whole bunch of things so you know those of you who are caring for men um recognizing that that you know, that having that respect and having them feel as though and know that you respect them um, is really important. And it'll take you a long way as to how you care for someone. Yeah, You're, you are right. And that, and that was the one thing. It, my father would always say, man, your mother's getting on my nerves. <laughs> your mother's getting on. And I think, and to be honest with you, I really think it was a, 
he was feeling disrespected. I really, I really, yeah, you know, yeah. he did yeah. not, regardless of his state, he wanted to feel like I am still a man. That yeah. hugely I am, important. Yeah, I am hugely not a child. Important. I am still a man, even in this state. And, and and that was why our relationship was so good is that I always saw him still as my dad and my brother, but we, there was a level of respect that Absolutely. always, always. My last question, Dr. Turner, what's your revolution? What is my revolution? My revolution is, a, it comes from my, my Christian faith. My revolution is about love. Um, every day, I hope that I can learn how to, what, what, what did Jesus mean? The love, love thy neighbor as thyself, yes. right? I hope that every day I can get a little bit clearer understanding of what that means. And I can walk in that, right? Because, um, he says this is the greatest commandment of, of everything. And so I, I hope that when people engage with me or that, um, you know, I encounter them in, in many different ways, they could say, you know, whether they like, you know, what I stand for, what I don't stand for. And we get an agreement, disagreement, arguments and everything else and say that that brother really, you know, he walks in, in the love that God has calling him to love other people and trying to learn what that means, you know, to e even love myself. In, in yeah. That is a beautiful revolution, brother. I appreciate it. Revolutionaries, look, I get a chance to interview some of the most prolific luminaries in this country. This is, as we say, an ordinary show because we just did that. Dr. Robert Turner, I just want to thank you for your time and your wisdom and your intellect as we think about some, something that impacts so many of us, whether as a caregiver or it impacts our body and our mind. And I want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for who you are as a human being, right? As a black man, as a, as a literate, luminate black man out here in this world, pontificating and writing about and educating us on brain health and Alzheimer's and dementia and how we can move forward in our own revolutions to take care of ourselves. So thank you so much. Revolutionaries, I, I want you to make sure that you are listening, learning, and taking care of yourself and always thinking about the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's a revolution? We'll see you next time. You know that I love Go you. Dukes. <laughs> Go, Go Dukes. Go Dukes. Go Dukes. <laughs> That's right. We'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. All right. Peace. Thank you. Take care. What's good, Revolution? Go Dukes. Go Dukes. Dr. Turner, I appreciate that. That was amazing. That was amazing. Uh, just uh, more informative than I even thought it was going to be. So I'm, I'm truly in gratitude of you. Well, I hope I hope it doesn't. It's too. I hope it's not too far geeked out. But hey, listen. There's a lot there. A lot that people need to know. And if I can be a resource to help people in any way, please always call on. I will. I will. Go Duke. Go Duke. Go Duke.
I do. And, um, you know, ever since my father passed, you know, there, 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 there wasn't any reprieve. My mother started taking care of my mother, uh, who is, Oh, did you? Yeah. 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 You are now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I know if we, I'd talk to you, I know that you have family you have siblings. I'm an only child. And, um, okay. Yeah. So it, it, it is, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It, it, it is definitely a lot of fun. Uh, my mother is, uh, although I think most of her cognitive faculties are still there, she suffers from debilitating arthritis. And so her mobility, I see. yeah, her mobility is challenged sometimes, but rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, yeah, that's the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, the, I want to say in the last two weeks, um, she woke up and she could barely move. Her hip was, her hip was killing her. So we had to work, you know, work. I had to take some time off, work with the ice and, and the, um, the percussion, the percussion gun to get her back, uh, to get her back walking. But I just enjoy being able to take, take time and, and to take care of her. Um, yeah, I miss my dad though. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Now, are you, uh, are do you, did you move back in with your mom or you live close enough with you? Yeah. I live about 10 minutes away. <laughs> I live about 10 minutes. Uh, I'm trying to hold moving back, <laughs> moving back into the house, uh, as, as long as possible. I live about 10 minutes away. Uh, and she's still, she still drives. She still does her thing. Oh, she does. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's really when she gets a flare up. Exactly. Ex exactly. Um, and so, but she, she moves, she drives, she goes to see, as my dad would call him. She has lunch with the little the uh, little old ladies with the tennis shoes, as my he he would call them. And so, um, yeah. So I I know the day is coming when her mobility or her ability is to not drive, and that's going to change. That's going to change my life. But I'm holding on for as long as I can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's life altering. There's no question about it. Yeah, definitely changes everything. I mean. That was one of my biggest challenges, and I'm sure we'll probably get into it. But mm -hmm. you know, this the the how it changes your identity, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, to in a, in a in a great different way. So it, it's been a real issue. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it does. It does. And I would you know, for I would love for us to talk about this, just to kind of give you a crux of uh, the show. Really, you know, the people who listen to the show are looking for tips, strategies, tools things that they can implement every day. I'd love to have, you know, this conversation around uh, Alzheimer's, the etiology, of the, the etiology of the disease, and then, you know, moving into the kind of the caregiving and what then what we can do, hopefully, as black men, because the lion's share of people that listen to the show are black men, how we might be able to take care of ourselves early on to hopefully stymie, mitigate the onset of the disease. So... You know, things like that. Um, and it's a free flowing conversation. Um, you might say something and that might take me down another road. I'll bring it back. But there might be something that I dive into based on your answer. At some point, I'm going to ask you, what's your revolution? That's the main question of the show. And um, we'll keep it moving. We'll go for hopefully about 45 minutes. And okay. yeah, no problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we're going to no get started because I know you're look, I know how that time is. Say go right here.